somebody in here and begin to speak over their life what they're keeping the faith about. We as the children of God don't realize the power that is in us to speak over the life of those that God has surrounded us with. So if you want somebody to keep the faith, tell them what they're keeping the faith for. I challenge you, find somebody in here and begin to just let God speak through you and tell them what they're keeping their faith about. You may be going through something, but keep the faith. Because I declare that God's blessings are yours. The blessings of the Lord belong to you. So keep the faith. Keep the faith. Keep the faith. <laughs> now you need to begin to celebrate. Begin to celebrate the grace and power of God. Somebody lift your voice before the Lord. Hallelujah. Come on, somebody lift your voice before the Lord. Hallelujah. Come on, saturate the atmosphere in here. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on, praise team. Hallelujah. 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 Come on, lift your voice before the Lord. Hallelujah. Glory. Have your way, Lord. Have your way, Lord. Have your way. Have your way. Have your way. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. He knows the pain. He knows what you're going through. Blow through here, Holy Ghost. Pour out thy spirit, Lord. Pour out thy spirit, Lord.
Hallelujah. 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 He's able, he's able. He's able, he's able. He's able, he's able. Just hold on, just hold on. Don't give up, don't give up. He's with you right now. every one of you in the land of the living you may be seated we definitely salute you to our visitors may the spirit of the lord be with you and upon you and may he feed you with something you've never tasted before that it might drive you back to the table hallelujah hallelujah those that we have a rule here you're a visitor once and the next time your family so for the family that may have been absent for a while, we welcome you back. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Those that are tuning in, we salute you. We thank God for you. We appreciate you spending this time with us. I was up all week dealing with God on this very word and my wife is my witness there were several things going on and every moment I could break away I came back to my computer and began to type what God was pouring into my spirit I feel overwhelmed at this word that he has given me to give to you today in fact I was up until the as they say wee hours of the morning going over it again and again and again and again listening to the voice of God if you would for a moment look at your neighbor and ask your neighbor this question whence does your river flow Whence is an old English word, simply means where from. Whence, where does your river flow? Turn with me in the book of John, the seventh chapter, and I will read for your hearing a very common and familiar passage of Scripture beginning at the 37th verse, ending at the 39th. We're going to talk about this today as best as I possibly can. I promise not 
to prevent myself from preaching while it is not my intention to preach today, but simply to impart a word, transforming word into your life. John 7, 37 through 39, and it reads, In the last day, uh, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. For the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. You may be seated. We must understand that when we are reading the Word of God, we have to ensure that we are not only understanding the Word, but the context in which what is being said or what has been written or what is being quoted is coming from. But we also, even in understanding the context, must also grapple with the grammatical form in which that word has been rendered. Looking at this text, we must pay close attention to not only what is being said, but how what is said is said. And uh, this requires that we pay close attention to the verbiage that is used, which will include how the punctuation is used as well. You see, in the study of God's Word, there are three distinct focuses. First, there is theology. This is simply the study of God. Then there is Christology, which is simply the study of the Christ or Jesus. And then there's pneumology, which is simply the study of the Holy Ghost. In this case today, we are focusing upon the study of Jesus or a Christological view of the text. When we examine the scripture from the wrong perspective, we will derive to a wrong understanding of what it is that God is trying to say. And the problem is, is that when you come to the wrong conclusion from what you read, you get wrong results. And wrong results will frustrate the life of a believer. It's important that we examine the context, though, before I begin to break this down any further. Let's uh, mark in your word the book of Leviticus, the 23rd chapter and the 39th verse, where it says, Also in the 15th day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. This is the backdrop from which Jesus is beginning to engage a group of people who have gathered for this feast. It is a feast that is now at its last day. It's the last feast of the year. It is the Feast of Tabernacles. 
and it's distinguished by some very remarkable ceremonies. During this particular feast, there is a moment when the priest, as was done on every day of this particular festival, would bring forth in golden vessels water from the stream of Silo, which flowed under the temple mountain, and the priest would solemnly pour that water upon the altar. This is symbolic and refers back to what the prophet Isaiah says in 12 and 3, Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And even in this moment as the priest would pour the water out upon the altar, the people would begin to sing this very verse in the book of Isaiah. Therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Understanding Jesus, we find that Jesus had already drawn all eyes upon himself. I know that uh, Tupac wants you to think that all eyes are on him, uh, but Jesus had all eyes on him. He drew them to him because of his supernatural power and the unrivaled level of his teaching. But the text states that Jesus stood. As we look and begin to try to visualize what we're seeing, Jesus is probably standing in an elevated position and making a cry out as if making a proclamation in the midst of the people. And this is what he says. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. What an offer this is. The deepest cravings of the human spirit are on display in this very text. Even as in the Old Testament, it is expressed by the word thirst. And the eternal satisfaction of that very thirst being satisfied by the act of drinking. To the woman of Samaria, Jesus had almost stated the same thing in the same terms. In John 4, 13 and 14, we find Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up in into everlasting life. But what to her was simply affirmed as fact is here now turned into a worldwide proclamation. And whereas there the gift by him of the living water is the most prominent idea in the text in contrast with the woman at the well's hesitation to give Jesus perishable water from the well of Jacob. As we look at the text, we find that the prominence is given to Jesus as the wellspring of all satisfaction. Look at your neighbor and tell your neighbor that Jesus will satisfy you. If you remember back in Galilee, he invited all the weary and heavy laden of the human family to come unto him. And the promise of Christ was that he would give you rest. 
The word declares in Matthew 11 and 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, which is just the same deep want with the same profound relief of that very want under another equally grateful depiction of the human condition. Jesus proclaims in the synagogue of Capernaum himself in every variety and form. He says that he is the bread of life and was both able and authorized to appease your hunger. He also is living water that will quench your everlasting thirst. If you believe on him, there is and there can be nothing beyond Jesus. But what was on all these occasions uttered in private or addressed to provincial audiences here is sounded forth in the streets of this great religious metropolis. And in a language of surpassing majesty, simplicity, and grace. You see, it is just Jehovah's ancient proclamation now sounding forth through human flesh. You see, Isaiah 55 and 1 declares, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. You see, in this light we have but two alternatives. Either you agree with Caiaphas that stated Jesus is guilty of death, or you can fall down before Jesus and exclaim with Thomas, my Lord and my God, as the scripture hath said. You see, these words belong to what follows out of his belly, as the scripture hath said, shall flow. This refers not to any one particular passage, but to a flow of thought and providence of God throughout his word. If you look at Isaiah 58 and 11, it'll tell you, And the Lord shall guide thee continually, and satisfy thy soul in drought, and make fat thy bones, and thou shalt be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters fail not. Joel says in 3.18, And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord, and shall water the valley of Shittim. Or if you look at Zechariah 14 and 8, you'll see it says, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. You see, in most of which the idea is that of water that is issuing from beneath the temple. Ah, the temple. There's something important about the temple and where the water dwells under it because Jesus compares himself and those who believe in him as temples. Uh, it declares out of his belly, that is, the inner man, his soul, as in Proverbs 20 and 27, 
the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord searching all the inward parts of his belly. Look at your neighbor and say, it's in my belly. Some of us got more room than others. But the Bible declares rivers of living water, John 4 and 13. And Jesus answered and said unto her, whosoever drink of this water shall thirst again. You see, it refers primarily to the copiousness of this living water to the benefit of others. Now, if we take just a cursory review of this text, it would become easy to find ourselves believing that the well of living water is coming out of the belly of the believer rather than the belly of Christ. When we have wrong application, we end up with powerless and fruitless productivity, which touches our faith because our faith then is flawed. Then we are filled with frustration because what we believed did not work as we believed it to work. This is why we have to examine the entirety of the scripture so that we can garner a full and complete understanding which leads to right application and ends in results that glorify God. So if you look at the text as transcribed, you will see a very peculiar application of a grammatical form known as a comma in a very distinctive but necessary place. See, you have to understand the purpose of the comma. The comma is a valuable and useful punctuation device because it separates the structural elements of sentences into manageable segments. Look at your neighbor and says the comma breaks up the thought. You see, the comma introduces a pause between thoughts with the intention to clarify meaning behind what is being said. Now, there are eight accepted grammatical uses of the comma, but in this text, the comma indicates dependent clauses, which are simply incomplete or incomplete thoughts that cannot function on their own, but connect back to something else that has been stated. So as we examine the text, we find that the comma in the text, he that believeth on me, comma, as the scripture hath said, comma, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So you have to connect the statement uh, out of his belly to as the scripture hath said and not to he that believes. So then the river of living water flows from the belly of Christ and not the belly of the believer. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, why is, is this even important? Well, uh, you see, Jesus is pointing us the believer back to who he is rather than what he has done. You see, too often we get caught up in the things that Jesus 
has done, the miracles that Jesus has worked. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He's cast out devils. And all of those things are wonderful things. But really, at the end of the day, they mean nothing if you don't know who Jesus is. It's vital that we understand the who of Christ beyond the what of Christ or the doings of Christ. If Jesus is just a man, then the shedding of his blood means nothing. But knowing that God is in him reconciling the world unto himself because Jesus is God, it establishes a foundation and validation behind Jesus being able to satisfy every one of your needs. Uh, our greatest need is salvation from sin or forgiveness of sin. But we find the Bible clearly states there's only one that can forgive sin. That one is God himself. Man cannot redeem man. So when Jesus makes a declaration that your sins are forgiven, for this to mean anything, Jesus has to be more than a man. Jesus to have the authority and the capacity to forgive your sin along with the providence to forgive your sin. Jesus must be more than a man. Because if Jesus is nothing more than a man, you and I are still dead in our trespasses. And if we are dead in our trespasses, we are cut off from God. So Jesus makes this startling declaration that he, in essence, is the only one who can bring full and everlasting satisfaction from the things we are in need of so that we might understand that he is God. Now watch what John says. John says this in 1-1, in the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You see, this points to the uniqueness of Jesus because John later tells us something else about this very Word uh, in 1 and 14 where he states, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So let me take this just a step further. When I look then at the birth of Jesus from the womb of Mary, I find that for you and I, this is the indication of our life and existence or the stipulation of our beginning. But this is not the beginning of Jesus. You see, our beginning begins at our conception. Ah, but the origin of Jesus did not begin at the conception of his earthly birth. As a matter of fact, for Mary to have a virgin birth, what is born must then have another origin 
other than the birth. For you and I, our beginning is initiated by something external penetrating what is internal. But for Christ in humanity, he is the fulfillment of something internal that was working internally. So why then is this even important? Well, I'm glad you had the thought. You see, we long to access the power of God. For so long we have declared that the church has lost the power. I stand here uh, diametrically opposed to this statement because the church has not lost the, the power of God. What we have lost is the understanding of how to deal with what has been harnessed on the inside of us. We lost the code or the key to access what God has implanted on the inside of us. Lord, help me here. We simply fall short because we don't understand the life that produces the power. Uh, let me break this down just a little bit further. First off, we find that there are, in fact, two depictions of the nature of life that exists in Jesus. The first kind of life, and this is important, is his human life, which in essence is imparted life, which is better described as creature life. Look at your neighbor and tell your neighbor you're a creature. Your life is imparted life. It is life that has been imparted in you. We find that when Adam was formed from the earth, uh, that he only became a living soul when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It was an indication that something outside of man would have to come in and penetrate man so that man could live. That is imparted life. Uh, but the second life is what we call creator life or life without beginning. So Jesus has creature life traced through his mother Mary, but he also has inherent life that comes from his father. It has been said that we are the sum total of our progenitors, which are our parents. So then everything in the mother and father is in the offspring, which means the DNA of my parents can be found in the makeup of my body. This is why when you look at me, you can see my earthly father. You can see my earthly mother because what makes up my mama and my daddy came together and is imparted in me. And now I reflect what was in them. So then, if this holds true, Jesus is the sum total of the DNA of his progenitors. He is both then human and he is divine. 
because he carries within his makeup the DNA of his human mama and that of his holy father. In so being, he is able then to bridge the divide between sinful man and a holy God because he is the man God or inherent life encapsulated or wrapped up in creature life. So then what I see is the power of God wrapped up in the flesh of Jesus. It's the power of God wrapped up in the flesh of Jesus. You ought to look at your neighbor and tell your neighbor, I'm simply the wrapping of the gift of God. You see, if Jesus has all power, then all the enemy can mess with is the wrapping. Because even as the Father dwelt in Jesus, so Jesus now dwells in us through the impartation of the gift of the Holy Ghost. That means the gift or the presence of inherent life or creator life is wrapped up in this shell of creature life. So now, the power of God dwells in Jesus, and since that holds true, the power of God dwells in each of us because Jesus, or that very inherent life, now dwells in this creature life, and every power is made subject to the power that has taken residence in me. The very power to control all power has been wrapped up inside of you. So when I begin to see this in my mentality, the devil loses his ability to afflict my mind. You see, the devil may afflict my flesh, because Jesus or the creator life is not in my flesh. This is why I can say weeping may endure for a night. Uh, because weeping is normally connected to my fleshly existence. But joy cometh in the morning. So then I refocus on that which is eternal from that which is temporal. I begin to understand that the devil can't touch the life that is in me. I am reminded also that the Bible declares now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? Well, why did he go there? Well, I find that there was an exchange of ownership to some very vital keys. Uh, Revelation 1 and 18 declares, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of hell and of death. So I find then that Jesus took back the keys of my life 
But he didn't stop there because then he transfers those keys to me. You see, Jesus uh, uh, did what Adam failed to do because God took keys of our existence and handed them to Adam so that Adam might have dominion in the earth. And then the devil came and does what the devil does, and he stole those keys. He became the illegitimate owner of something that was not intended for him to have. Then Jesus comes on the scene and he says I must restore right ownership to the keys of life you ought to look at your name and tell your neighbor I've got the keys of life now you see Jesus transferred back to us these keys now why then is that important well Matthew 16 and 19 says it like this. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So why is that important? Because what then soever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever you shall loose on earth will be loosed in heaven uh, then what I see is creator life is now coming to bear in this creature life so the offender of life is removed by the power of the inherent or divine life that is living on the inside of me we keep looking to ourselves for the flow of this river of living water to come forth out of our belly but this life I now live I live by the power of the life that dwells in me. So the river of water that quenches my thirst flows from the belly of Christ, not the belly of man. You've got to understand you keep looking. You're going to the wrong well. And you keep drawing what is not good for you. Anyone that knows anything about water, from a well system understands that there are things in a well that don't taste good. Uh, there are things in a well uh, that when you dip the bucket down to pull the water out, uh, and where I live, we, we live in a system where our water comes from a well. So I have a pump that sits in the bottom of this well so it pumps water from the water table through the well system into my home and that water I use to wash and to to drink and to cook uh, but you got to understand something there are things in the water table that are not good for me so I have to put a filter on the pump that protects me from the impurities that's in the water. The problem is, is some of us are drinking unfiltered water and wondering why we're sick all the time. Oh, I'm almost done. So what does this mean then in a practical sense? It means that as I move in this natural life, 
I'm not bound by this natural life. All the struggles of this life and of my flesh are subject to the power of the creator life that is in me that I can tap into when I understand from whence my river flows. You see, the life of my creature emotions are subject to the creator life that is in me. I then have the ability living in me to overcome every struggle of this life. I am therefore no longer a slave to this life, but rather I am liberated to live life. My ability to then choose how I react to life is governed by what is life satisfying my daily thirst. So I begin to live out the scripture. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. And if nothing can hurt me, then I am able to live a worry-free existence because God has housed in this skeletal structure that which is the fullness of power. As we look at the text, if you would believe as the scripture says, <laughs> oh, then you got to know what the scripture has to say about your dilemma. You've got to understand what the scripture says about your sickness. You've got to understand what the scripture says about your bipolar thinking. You've got to understand what the scripture says about the disruption of your peace. You've got to understand then what the scripture says about your weakness. You've got to understand then what the scripture says about your addiction. You've got to understand then what the scripture says about your relational struggles. You've got to understand than what the scripture says about your finances. You've got to understand then what the scripture says about your marriage. You've got to understand then because if you believe as the scripture says, <laughs> then out of your belly, what belly? I am dead and Jesus is alive in me. So out of the belly of creator life that is giving me life is the source of my victory. Then everywhere I go, victory follows me. I'm not going to find victory. Victory is following me everywhere I go. I'm not going to strategize some attack plan to take out my enemy. Conquering has followed me, so when I approach my enemy, he's already defeated. The Bible declares that I am more than a conqueror. So it's not even enough that I conquer. I'm more than a conqueror. Uh, but see, the problem is, is that many of us are like people in the boxing arena that lose the fight before they ever step in the ring. 
uh, because they hear the history or they are persuaded by the story of their opponent. Uh, Mike Tyson used to beat people before they ever got in the ring and received the first punch. This is why when they got in the ring, they fought in that fight unlike they fought in any other fight because they fought from a position of defeat when they entered the ring in the first place. Uh, they saw Mike come down, no frills, black tennis shoes, and black trunks, and a white towel, and that's all he had. He came in looking like he was ready to do business. Ah, uh, but then one day, he came down with that same mantra. Ah, uh, but he ran into somebody that did not feel like everybody else felt because he understood who he was, and he said, I'm gonna go into this ring and I'm gonna do what no one else has done. The problem is that many in the body of Christ, every time we are engaged in conflict, we engage that conflict negating the victory that is waiting to be released at the command of the believer. If a host of angels encamp around them that believe, what are your angels doing? Some of your angels have been on vacation because you've put them on holiday. I keep my angels busy. I command them, why? Because Jesus, the creator life, dwells in me, and the word says all power and authority has been subject to Christ. So if that is in me, then everything, everything is then subject to what I have to say about it. This is why the Bible can say, what you bind, it doesn't say what God binds on earth is bound in heaven. Look at your neighbor and say, it says you. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Why? Because that which is authority is waiting to be applied in your situation. God is waiting for you to speak according to his word so his word which we know is Jesus can be glorified. So Jesus then is glorified by your victory. And when Jesus is glorified, the devil is horrified. And the devil is horrified because he sees that you understand he has no power over you. Yes, he can afflict the wrapping. Oh, but I am way more than this wrapping. I am way more than the physical makeup of this human body. 
I am the embodiment of that which is life and power. I am the living God walking in the earth because the Bible declares so. I'm not giving a grand head and a big head and this idea that I am greater than God. I understand that Jesse died and Jesus was alive in me. So it's okay then. It's not prideful to say that I have everything that I need to accomplish, everything that God has intended for me to accomplish because God's purpose is to glorify his son. But he cannot glorify his son without you. You've got to understand and remember the purpose of your creation. You were created in the mind of God to bring glory into creation. You see, God, seeing and knowing all things, uh, he understood what Lucifer was going to do because Lucifer, before the creation of man, his purpose was to uh, transfer or be the conduit of the glory of God in all of creation. Lucifer then became the light of God in all of creation. So as Lucifer was in the throne room of God, he was created with such perfection and beauty that he was reflective of God's glory. The Bible declares that in him was the ability to reflect because in him was diamonds. So why would diamonds be in Lucifer? They were in him because his purpose was to reflect or regurgitate God's glory when Lucifer was around God, God would be reflected into the world. So God has a counsel with himself understanding what what Lucifer is going to do because God is omniscient. He knows all things. He understands that Lucifer is going to fall. But what God does is he establishes in the counsel of himself that he's going to create something that has the inherent ability to reflect his glory in the earth. So God says, I am going to put on man a creative nature so that he can reflect me. So then when you go into a situation, when you understand who you are, your purpose is not to reflect your thought, it's not to reflect your ability. It's not to reflect what you believe or what the world believes about your crisis. Your purpose is to reflect God in your dilemma. So sometimes when I go to the doctor, I'm not waiting to hear what the doctor says. I'm waiting for the doctor to come in so I can reflect what God has already said. The word of God says, I am healed. The word of God declares that he is the God that healeth me. I have the ability to believe in the life of God affecting the life of man. This is who we are. This is who God has predetermined 
us to be. The ability to reflect what the scripture says so that life, living water, can flow out of me. Or in essence, what I need can flow from the God that is in me, through me, into my crisis to establish order in my chaos. You've heard me say this before. Chaos exists where order has not been established. So the purpose of man, if all authority has been given over to you through the indwelling of the gift of God, it's not for you to run from chaos. Chaos is waiting for you to show up so you can establish order. Because absent your arrival, chaos has nothing to listen to. Understand who you are is more important than understanding what you're capable of. You've got to know who you are. Jesus wanted them to know who he was. Uh, they already saw the level of his understanding because his teaching was so far above everybody else's teaching. As a matter of fact, it, it was almost difficult for him to lower himself in such a manner to speak so that the finite uh, mind of man could receive the essence of what he's saying. He said, I, I can't even release. The, the Bible declares that Jesus made a statement that there is stuff you ain't got no clue about. I can't even tell you about this meat. I can't even clue you in. It'll blow your mind. Ah, but what he did lose. What he did release is so life-changing that it touches every aspect of your being and because it's in every morsel of your existence, Nothing escapes its reach. That means that there's nothing that you can go through that cannot be touched by the God that is in you. There's absolutely nothing you go through. This is why the devil has you believing a lie that says, I cannot help it. This is so far from the truth. Just because you have the propensity in your flesh to do a thing does not mean you don't have the power to deny your flesh the things it wants. Many of us have the propensity to do that which is against God. Think not yourself higher than you ought, for Paul himself declared, when I would do good, evil is present with me when I know better I still find myself doing that which is not convenient in other words there's still a struggle yet he understood when he applies the scripture which is the revelation of your authority why is it that God says I hide my word in your heart 
So in the moment of your need, you can draw from something the devil cannot touch. This is how you bless your enemies rather than choking your enemies out. This is how when the doctor gives you bad news, you can stand there with a smile on your face. Because if God is no respecter of persons and he healed the blind man, if God is no respecter of persons and he healed the deaf man, if God is no respecter of persons and he healed the paralytic man, if God is no respecter of persons and he's done all these things for all of these people, then I don't care what I have. God is able to deliver me. The world is running crazy because Corona has hit the scene. I declare Corona has no authority to afflict me because the power that is deliverance dwells on the inside of me. You have no idea how frustrating it is as a pastor to hear people say, I did not come to church because I was sick. Then you don't understand two things because the excuse is I was sick and I did not want to infect somebody else but the problem is, is you don't understand that one you don't have the ability to infect somebody else if you're in the presence of God and two you don't understand the power of God that's present to deal with your sickness the Bible declares that sick people ought to come to the house of God because it is in the house of God where your healing is. Yet the devil causes you to think that I've got to stay away from because I don't want to inflict any suffering on anybody else. I'm not worried about what your contagious level is because I know the Bible says bring the sick to the elders of the church. What? Not that they can mack. Mass up, mask up in a Mach 3 uh, suit with a breathing helmet and gloves and everything else to keep from getting what you got. Honey, I want you to get what I got is the understanding that the healing virtue of God is in me. So when I lay hands on you, you shall recover. People that don't understand who they are are running around trying to wash their hands. Get, let me get that antibacterial stuff. And don't even realize that the doctors will tell you now you have overdone it with antibacterial stuff because you've made yourself too different than the environment. So while you're trying to make yourself clean, you have, in essence, made yourself susceptible to what your body should have already uh, made itself comfortable with. Running around, worried about what you're going to catch. Oh, you know, I can't go to so-and-so's house because, you know, they was coughing the other day. Yeah. You know, they, they cough in it. You know, they, I don't want to get what they got. 
rather than going there in the power of who you are, laying hands on them so they can get well. Not worried about what's going to happen to you because Jesus has got you. Jesus wasn't afraid to lay hands on people. Jesus didn't get sick because he was fulfilling his call. He was doing what his father commanded him to do so that he could bring glory to his father. And when you are functioning in the capacity whereby the glory of God can be made manifest in any situation, you are protected from the outcome or the backblast of the very environment that you are in. You are protected by God because God is not glorified if you die bringing healing to somebody else. You see, we have the mentality like the X-Men. Dr. X, super powerful mutant, make you believe anything. So powerful, he could stop time. So powerful, he could leave, his, his very consciousness could leave his body and implant itself in another body but he couldn't get out of his wheelchair. He could not even apply his own power to his own condition because he didn't understand the fullness of who he was. You see, they, they have you believe when you watch the history of, of the X-Men that uh, he was shot and it severed a part of his body which prohibited his legs from functioning, which confined him to a chair. Yet, he has the ability to remove his consciousness from himself and put it in somebody else. He has the ability to stop time. He can stop time, but he can't repair a severed piece of his spinal cord the problem is, is many of us are just like that because we don't fully understand the power that is in us. I am hope walking. I am prosperity walking. I am peace walking. I am deliverance walking. I am grace walking. Why? Because I am as he is right now. I'm not telling you something that's not in the word of God. The word of God declares that we that are in Christ are as he is right now. Well, what is he? He is elevated. That means I'm elevated. He is seated at the right hand of God. That means I'm seated at the right hand of God. And the picture of Christ at the right hand of God is with his feet 
upon a stool. The stool is a representation of his enemies. That tells me that if the enemies of Christ are under his feet and I am what he is, then everything that stands against me is under my feet. Because I understand who I am. It does me no good if I don't know my identity in Christ. When you don't know who you are, the devil can make you believe anything about yourself. That's why some of you are still running around thinking that you're sinners. Because you committed maybe some sin last night. Because you did something that you know, messed you up. You just had, you had a weak moment in the flesh. You didn't, you didn't do what you were able to do, so you, you gave into some temptation. Now you're all, you're all contradicted, and you don't know whether I should go to church or not. I feel terrible and bad about what I've done. You're the only one twisted about it because the Bible declares that there is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ. Just because you slipped up doesn't mean you slipped out. But the devil wants you to begin to believe something about yourself that is simply not true. I am still bound in the life of Christ. That's why the Bible says the redeemed ought to say so. So when the devil starts to remind me of when I slip up, I tell the devil I know who I am. My identity is not in the flesh of my existence. It is in the life of my existence. The eternal life that is dwelling on the inside of me that enables me to rise above my dilemma. I am the redeemed of the Lord. Jesus already dealt with it. Over 2,000 years ago, he knew on such and such a day, I was going to make such and such a mistake. So he already took care of it so that it would not affect me or prevent me from accomplishing what God commanded me to do. What does most sin do? It causes you to pause in your advancement in your life with God. Because when you sin, you feel like you have to now go all the way back to the beginning. I, I, I got to be cleaned again. I need to get washed in the blood of the Lord. This is why you'll find some people in church, they were baptized and... They had the right understanding when they got baptized, but maybe they fell away. Then they come back, and, oh, I got to get baptized again. As if your first baptism was made null effect because of your period of absence from the church. But that's simply not biblically correct. God washed me and made me whole. People of God, you've got to understand who you are and from whence your river flows.
Or simply put, the power that dwells on the inside of you that's greater than everything that afflicts the wrapping of that very existence. The creator God lives in you, empowers you, anoints you. This is why you're capable of doing things that you cannot do in and of yourself. And I'll close with this. You have to understand that the natural realm is a reflection of the things that are going on in the spiritual realm. Now, there have been news reports throughout the world, throughout man's history, of men being physically able and women being physically able to do things that they would not be able to do in any other situation. But because of the climax of the current crisis, they're able to do stuff that they should not be able to do. This is why people who have had loved ones trapped in an automobile or under an automobile have had the ability to go to the automobile and lift it to free the loved one that is trapped. They were able to rise above that which is normal. Why? Because in that moment, reality and the eternal existence of God lined up and reality begin to reflect the eternal power that is in God so reality laid itself down so the supernatural gift of God could be demonstrated in reality don't you understand that you have the ability to make reality adjust itself to reflect what is true in whatever situation you're in your reality is not determined by the crisis your reality is determined by the scripture because if you believe as the scripture has said. And you can do miracles. You can do miracles. Jesus declared that if you had the faith as of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, Jesus wasn't being figurative. He was being literal. He, he was trying to get you to understand that there is something that is implanted on the inside of you that will cause all creation to be subject to what you say. Because the creator God dwells in you. God bless you. Hallelujah.